0: Do you like data centers? data centers? Cause I love data centers. I love data
1: centers. So, data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers.
0: Woo! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Stuart Robbins, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is, this is our first time actually doing one live one-on-one here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, for those who don't know Stuart, I've known Stuart for almost a decade Now, if not a little bit longer, Mm -hmm. Stuart is the author of a variety of of things, one of which transformed my life back in 2005. The title of the book is Lessons in Grid Computing, the System as a Mirror, uh, which we'll have in the show notes. I encourage you all to pick it up and and read it uh, after you get done listening to this podcast. But Stuart, thank you for, for being here.
1: My pleasure. It's a thrill to see you at work doing what you do after all this time.
0: Yes. So the conversation that we're going to have today is going to be pretty, uh, both on and off topic. But one of the things that we're, we're going to explore is the topic of ethics and technology and where, uh, where the linear path is headed, if it's linear, it might be a sine wave for the current state and the progressive state of how we use technology in the world today. Um, one of the quotes that I came across recently that struck my eye that I'd set aside on my desk waiting for a time to do something with it. Um, I'm going to read and then you can, you can tell me the reaction that you gave me last night and then we can kind of go, Great. go from there. So the quote was actually in the, uh, the alumni for Santa Clara magazine, I went to Santa Clara University back in oh eight i'm sorry ninety eight to two thousand and two but in one of the articles there 's a, a quote from Brian Patrick Green that states, We need a revolution in our behavior in our ethics rather than just a revolution in our technology and i 'm going to read it again, We need a revolution in our behavior in our ethics rather than just a revolution." In our technology, and Stuart, with the vast experience that you have working in and around Silicon Valley and in IT organizations and CIOs, CTOs, CEOs, CFOs, what what does that quote mean to you? And what triggered with you when when I read that last night?
1: Nothing. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, the The quote really resonates with me. In fact. Uh, my book starts with a quote from a good friend of mine in New York who at the time was the chief technology officer at Credit Suisse who said something very similar to me in a way that triggered um, the thinking for the book, which is that we must transform ourselves to the same degree that we need to transform our systems and our institutions. Um, And that led me through a series of not only research plateaus, but personal observation and thinking following the metaphor of the book which is that uh, very often not just in silicon valley in any tech community we tend to blame the technology for a series of problems when we get very frustrated we replace the technology with a better technology cybase to oracle oracle to MongoDB. pick pick your flavor of the month um and expect the newer, better thing to function in a newer and better way, and we're surprised when some of the same old problems emerge. And in to my mind, it's because those systems, being information systems, which are like family systems and organizations and macroeconomic systems, all systems follow some very, very similar patterns and principles, And in this particular case, we see what we are reflected in the systems. We build ourselves. We've built our world around us. Our world reflects how we think. If we want to change what we see in the mirror, we don't just replace the mirror. There's not a lot of logic in that. uh, But that's what we do. So we don't like what we see of ourselves in Oracle, so we replace it with a, a, a completely different database we spend three years and millions of dollars installing and then at the end the teams still aren't talking to each other The data isn't synchronized all of the things that still need to happen that we thought were architectural issues But in fact they're organizational issues and we build them into the things that We construct and produce for our organizations to use when we do have So it's easy to say, but do I have proof that when you work it in reverse, things get better? And I have had, at least in my personal experience and certainly um, colleagues, anecdotal experience. If you instead choose to fix the problem in the organization, the two engineers that aren't talking to each other, the two executives that hate each other, whatever it might be that is rippling down into the organization and then causing a similar lack of synchronicity in the system itself. Data is out of sync, expectations gone awry, customers don't like what it does, whatever that might be. Not only do we solve that bug, but the bug doesn't repeat. So if we don't solve the problem in the institution, those same two engineers will work on something new and the bug will come up again and again and again until we address the dissonance between the groups. I certainly don't claim to be the creator of this idea. This goes back generations. It's called Second Generation System Thinking. Gregory Bateson was a proponent. Um, And I was introduced to the idea by Dr. Sandra Bremen, who's now in Texas, um, teaching their systems, are systems. Mm -hmm. And we are playing a role in them, and we have a way of Changing them and transforming them should we choose to but when they don't change when they do repeat when year after year The same thing happens in elections or when year after year the same thing happens At year-end close and everybody's still arguing and then you work really hard to try and fix it And then the next year the same argument happens We need to step back and think okay What is it in our organization? family slash business unit slash engineering team that is causing us to repeat this pattern and address that and it's a really Scary thing for some engineering organizations because they go into technology because they don't want to interact with people (laughs) You know and often a lot of people are very happy working in their cubicle.
0: Yeah One of the uh, the stories that you presented to me a long time ago I think when we were at dinner for the first time or lunch at the first time in San Francisco was how um, you could go into an organization and meet with the stakeholders, the, the heads of the different departments and divisions, um, and spend a day or two just meeting them and talking to them about uh, their organization and their interdepartmental relationships with the other human beings that they work with. And you could then, at the end of those meetings, with a relatively high degree of accuracy, map the systems and the infrastructure that supported the organization
1: without even seeing a logical diagram and of those systems. They hate this when I do it. And I have, I have realized that it's kind of a parlor trick. And so, you know, in later um, client engagements, I didn't lead with this because people think it's a Houdini trick that somehow behind the scenes, I've got a zillion people feeding me, you know, data models um, so that I could pull out the card that has been in their pocket all along. Um, And it's not that. Um, It's something a little bit easier to explain, and a lot of very sophisticated people just don't want to hear it, which is we wear our problems on the lapels of our jackets. We, We, in the technology community, are far less sophisticated about organizational dynamics, organizational behavior, the kinds of things psychologists train many, many years To understand and see and recommend and help repair, hopefully. Um, I don't claim to be a trained organizational psychologist to that degree, but you don't have to be when you're only dealing with two plus two equals four on the behavioral state. Some of the things that you see going on at the executive level are playground dynamics, and it doesn't take a teacher of 40 years to observe those two kids. Arguing or bullying or gossiping about each other, you know, the teaching intern that just came out of school could see it and help repair um, Also outside eyes are a lot Clearer than if you grow up inside the family to address the same problem. So so how can this can you give a case study?
0: How that might play out? So you've got a great case study in the book um, there.
1: There are a couple I'll talk about one of the book because it's far enough In the background that I don't think any of the players are still there but this was at Symantec around the time of right after the Veritas merger so lots of system conflicts we had two billion dollar companies being pressed into one two sets of high-powered executives being ultimately pressed into one two application teams two hardware teams two of everything and the battles were going on and there were all the nice things being said, but daily business still had to occur. And um, I was brought in by one of the VPs of IT because there was a data warehouse problem before the acquisition. This isn't influenced by the acquisition. Um, They couldn't tie out their numbers. There was an argument between sales and finance and IT over what the golden master number set was that we're going to take to the street. And it was always off by different amounts and it was always just, it became the healthy argument at the end of every quarter between those three organizations. And they were convinced it was because the data warehouse had been architected incorrectly. And so they asked me to come in and review the architecture of the data warehouse and make some recommendations. Do we rebuild from scratch? Is it something that we can go in and and correct now? Where's the problem? Mm -hmm. And... I scoped the project that way and was perfectly fine going and looking at all of the original specs and the you know the production systems and and making some evaluations, but I'm also meeting people and I'm also talking to them and getting to know them and Two days into it, an engineer comes up to me and says, "Do you know about the other data warehouses and I didn't until she mentioned it, and I started investigate and the reason why they all got into arguments was because IT used IT's data warehouse, sales used its own sales ops data warehouse, finance had its own hybrid IT group shadow in the background, building its own set of Hyperion modeling, um, because the three VPs did not trust each other. And as soon as I realized that, I realized that you can build a data warehouse. If you've got enough money and enough time, you can build a data warehouse that works pretty much the way you expect it to work. If you don't have enough money or you don't have enough time, you start de-scoping and that's where you get into problems, but it's really a, a case of time and money. But in something like this, which would occur again and again and again, it was a people problem. The problem was that the three VPs hated each other, didn't trust each other, didn't want their organizations to trust each other, and thus they had three sets of numbers. You weren't gonna solve that by re-architecting IT's data warehouse. I could have been there for years and not solved the problem. Or I could choose to solve the problem and force the issue. But it's a different problem to solve. If you know, if you want me to just put a band-aid on the existing problem and make it look like the data warehouse has been fixed, I can do that. I don't choose to do that. That's I'm not in the business of just generating billable hours to generate billable hours. That's, that's plumbing that costs a lot of money and at the end looks the same. Which is not to say I'm not interested in architectural problems. I just find them rarely to be the root cause of anything. Because they were built by somebody. And that somebody imprinted themselves on it. And that's where you go to solve a root problem, whatever it might be. And in this case, because of course when I mentioned it to the three VPs individually, you guys have to get together to talk about this, they all refused. Um, you can't make me go to that meeting. I don't like that guy. I'm not going to go to the meeting. And the most polite one was, I'm just too busy. But they all were eventually willing to assign one of their direct reports as a second, who had the power to make decisions and reflect news back to the executive. And I got those three people, representatives together with subject matter experts in each of the areas. So we had reporting issues. We had who owns customer data issues? We had all of the people represented. We created a data governance team, and this team, rather than an individual, was chartered to resolve all data conflicts in a manner that would, over time, improve the data itself. And I believe the data governance group is still in existence. There, it's a, it, it's, it's one of those best practices that one does, you know, at a certain point when you have a large organization to make sure, you know. When I say customer name, you know it's not name underscore customer, it's not customer underscore name, it's customer name, and that's the entity that we're talking about. Well, we have to stay true to that if we're going to start doing data analysis. Otherwise, you get really stuck. And that group has been very successful despite the dissonance at the parent level. Call it that. So related to that
0: paradigm where you have... Competing and conflicting interests and people who simply might not like each other within an organization if you are a a Proverbial pawn or rook within an organization and you see that paradigm taking place What recommendations would you make? For such a person like let's say, you know your father you have a son uh, He's gonna be in the working world (laughs) and five probably four three two years
1: so Hope, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully next month
0: real soon <laughs> yeah. and he says dad i see this playing out what what advice would you give to him
1: i'm sure it will be wise articulate and useful through the rest of his life <laughs> um as we all are want to do with our sons it's a, it's a great question and the answer isn't a simple one because the perceiver's psychology also comes into bear. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into an organization and thought, oh, all they need is four-color brochures. Or, oh, all they need is to put the logo on the front of the building. Or, oh, simple answer, why aren't they doing this, Bo and have learned over time to learn a little bit more about the environment before you start proposing grand solutions to all of their problems. And you find there are actually some real complications at lots of different points that prevent the easy things from happening that may or may not be related to nasty players somewhere along the line that need to be rooted out. It may just be the dynamics of the organization that is struggling to do the best it can, but a newcomer might not see it that way. So... They should probably get a business coach to help them through their first year. There are lots of people out there who are very good mentors, lots of mentor organizations, as you know, that are positioned to do exactly this, to make sure that your response is a measured one over time and you don't do harm as an employee to your own contractual livelihood. Um, On the other hand, I would say the same thing. If an adopted child came in and thought this is a really dysfunctional family what do i do i mean we're talking about what how do you influence in a positive way a problem that is grander than you are toward a different end and you may not be able to and it's hard to gauge beyond a specific circumstance whether you could fix this if you were really good at fixing things or whether you should bail because it will never get any better. And if you really can't stand it, there are plenty we're in a good economy. There are times in you know when the advice would be don't quit your job. There isn't another one out there. That doesn't happen to be our current situation. So I would say if you're a talented engineer and you're seeing things around you that you don't like, whether it's how men treat women, whether it's what white people say about the Indians behind their back, whether it's accounting procedures that just don't seem right to you no matter how someone explains it you don't have to be there there are better places than that for you to have your early employment experience and unlike the old days where if you don't stay a year in a job somehow your resume looks screwy people don't pay much attention to that anymore i'm sorry to say although it is just the nature of the times if you've got the chops and you can you're an ios developer who can you know write code that sings no one's going to say i'm not going to hire you because there was a six month gap in your employment after you left for college it's just those are highly prized skills if you're if you're somebody who's on the support side a technical writer an accounting uh, member who may not have those high demand skills still it's worthwhile to talk to somebody about should i stay or should i go because nine times out of ten, there's a better place somewhere nearby. An awful lot of people talk themselves into staying for economic reasons, and an awful lot of people end up very, very happy at the end of their you know, career there because they end up getting laid off two years later. They, they were more loyal than the company was loyal to them, or whatever it turns out to be. The simple answer is that there isn't a simple answer. So if you think you know the solution to the problem, if you think as that young engineer you're looking up, and these two people are just... They hate each other. What do I do? You can trust that it's more complicated than that. It doesn't mean that it isn't solvable and it doesn't mean that it didn't get the root cause isn't in the organization. But there's plenty of information you don't have at your disposal. So don't jump to conclusions. Mm -hmm. It's like presuming you know everything about somebody on first date because you're generally has ha- have had a lot of first dates. Well, you know, some stories take longer to unfold. So I would say, you know, we talked about this a little while ago. I would say to think of other people kindly and try to find those positive aspects of working for them that you can use as fuel. And also be kind to yourself in terms of whether you decide to stay or whether you decide I'm better than this or I deserve better than this. I'm going to go and find something else because you have to be kind to yourself too. Hmm. Hmm.
0: So how did you get your start within the world of high tech and technology? Were you, were you exposed to it at a young,
1: young age or younger age? No. In fact, there were many people in late... College, you know, high school reunions, who, when I finally told them what I was doing, they would look at me and go, What? No one could have imagined that I'd ended up there. And it is a pretty eclectic route because before I got into Silicon Valley, I was a writer, Um, not of any grand repute, but fascinated by words, fascinated by their order on the page, fascinated by sometimes. The clarity is easy. Sometimes it's murky, no matter how much work you put into trying to polish that rock. And that just happened to be the, the thing I was most fascinated by since I was 12 years old, you know, and, and pulled a book off a library shelf and go, I want to do this. This is something I could do. I want to do this. That said, so my first job in Silicon Valley turned out to be a technical writing job, you know, where by writing standards, procedures are not that hard to write. They're not grammatically complex. An attentive writer can do a pretty good job on a a technical manual. And at the time, every piece of software shipped in a box with a user guide, a reference manual, and a read me first. And those three documents came out, and the user guide was big if it was a complicated piece of software so you had a lot of work to do and it had to be accurate and every time the engineers changed the software you had to go back and update the documentation. What occurred to me at a certain point as I became friends with software coders many of whom had been music majors in college many of whom played piano on the side you know at a jazz hotel or whatever it is whether it's C++ or Java or just plain old English like I write these are languages. They have syntax, they have protocols, they have the right way to phrase certain things. You can phrase them efficiently, Allah Hemingway, you can use lots of words to describe the same thing a la Proust, but there are models and there are linguistic flows and there are grammatical errors. If you leave a parenthesis out, an end bracket after an if-then, everything else beyond it goes nuts. But that's just a typo that can be corrected It's a lot like regular old writing, the way we used to diagram sentences, and when I made that connection, I realized that the really really good engineers, the ones who would just think about a problem and then write this black box code that just sang, first time out the door. They weren't any different than some of the most talented poets I know who would observe something, go to their room, and the next day have this incredible work of art that was a melody. It was lyrical. I don't write that way. I I have to work and work and work and work to make it appear lyrical or sound lyrical. But I appreciate the similarities in languages. And as a result, if that's true, then one should approach all the things that I knew from literature and from my own writing apply to programming. Um, Revision is a good thing, just like design reviews are, um, and QA. All of those things make a better story, make a better, you know, you need an audience who hasn't been involved who will read it and come back and tell you that middle part didn't make any sense to me. That's what usability testing is. And and so some of these truths started echoing. As I got to know these people more, I realized that the systems they were building, the multi-layered N-tier systems that sit on massive mainframes and go, you know, all the way up to this delicate UI... Are constructed by humans the way buildings are the way you know I mean we don't do things any differently in the small than we do in the large but we think we do so it doesn't occur to us that and and you'll remember this in the book I have a picture of a circuit board I'm trying to remember the vendors name to give them a credit but I don't think they exist and we're just a plain old circuit board you could pull out of just about any printer and go to Google Maps and go 10,000 feet over Vancouver or something, pick a residential neighborhood and compare the two pictures. They're very similar. There are boxes, there are straight lines, there are intersections, there are pathways through... Because we navigate our world in the same way, whether it's in the large or the small. We build things in the same way. We store precious things in the same way. We distribute power in the same way. We make mistakes the same way in both areas. And so the notion that an urban planner has nothing to offer a system chip designer is probably an error. And so I like the interdisciplinary problem-solving that's going on in smart cities now, because I think it's bringing together what we have intentionally forced apart in the early part of the industry because what we did was to say this is a special new field all rules are unique to itself and i think we we were wrong in that yeah. um, that there's more that's the same about what we do okay, the best the best way when i try to explain people explain to people
0: how infrastructure works is i, I have them put it into correlation with how buildings are built. Someone could say, Hey, I needed I need an application or I need a system built or I need a network work built. Great. That's like saying, hey, I need a high rise built. Or I need a residential complex.
1: Or built. I just need a shack for the night, two right. completely different projects, but Totally. Similar rules apply.
0: Right. right. And you have to, you have to then dig deeper, right? So right. how tall the building are right. you building? What is the use case for this building? Is this, is this going to be a
1: downtown building or is this going to be out in the middle of nowhere? Like, who's using it? Who's, who's using it? Who's regulating it? Who else do I need to talk to? Do I need a parking I, structure? <laughs> are there schematics? Right. Absolutely. So the, um, and then it, digging further
0: into that, you have to lay a foundation that's based on the use of the product. Um, And where I see most new app developers and whatnot, they say, well, this is going to be as big as Google. And yet the foundation that they're laying for the application or the program or the system is not that large. It's a
1: teeny tiny foundation that can't scale, that will not scale. Um, It's funny because when the two engineers first built Google and released it, it wasn't big and couldn't scale either, but they didn't have anyone to say, this is gonna be as big as Google. They were trying to solve a particular algorithmic dilemma in search that up till then required a lot of convoluted kind of thinking, the fulcrum engines and the search engines of the time only did things in certain ways. And these guys were going, but they come with problems. What if we searched in a different way, would that eliminate some of these problems rather than building in solutions to the problems would slow the whole process down? But they weren't thinking, at the time, billion-dollar company. They were solving the problem elegantly, um, and then it took off. Yeah. Um, I guess what I'm I have the same frustration you and I advise lots of entrepreneurs um, and i give the same advice i was given my start my startup no one listens to me the way i didn't listen to those people though i should have which is nine out of ten startups fail regardless of the passion of the founder regardless of the good idea it could be the best idea in the world and it will fail nine times out of ten um getting through that gauntlet to success and we could talk forever about what does success really mean if you save two lives Is that success, or do you have to save the entire world's population before you call it success? It's a very tough thing for people to resolve. But I've known people to spend years building applications that have no market. Or since that time, there has been a technical development that diminished... The need for a solution to the problem, because so few people were now working in that way. They could just go over here and do it in a different way, And but this application is still building a solution, and they don't know why people aren't impressed, um, in the same way that I have lots of very long stories sitting in the drawer of my desk. Um, they were fascinating for me to write, and as a young writer, I didn't understand how every editor in the world wasn't saying, wow, that's the best thing I've read since and so um, no they would probably get through the first paragraph and a half and say "No, I've read this 16 times so I'm sympathetic with the passion I'm sympathetic with the problem-solving spirit um, we waste so much of our time on the wrong things and probably for the wrong reasons I mean if you if you're really trying to solve the problem it doesn't matter whether people buy it or not if one person uses it and the problem gets solved you win, but that's not a win in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not a unicorn, you're an also ran, and I even hate the word unicorn, but I think it's supposed to be self-mocking. Um Sorry. I've been in enough startups that have been overvalued to know that the reckoning comes at some point. People who had religion lose it, the faithful get a little bit screwed in the acquisition process. I've also been in startups that never get the attention they need, not because it wasn't really good code, but because it was 10 years early for the market. And 10 years later, something just like it suddenly blossomed where theirs couldn't get any attention at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are so many factors that go into whether something catches the wind or not that I, I really spend a lot of time telling people, why are you building a kite at all? You know, there's so many other interesting things to do, Yeah. you know. Um, why would you work for free for three years with no guarantees of anything in order to be bailed out by bankers who don't understand code um, so that you could be in debt to them for the rest of your life on the off chance that you get a headline in Fast Company or, you know, New York Times technology section. Uh, by, the, by the time you get there, you're, you're not going to think that's enough. You're going to want more. So let's go back to the um,
0: the analogy here of, of building code or building systems or networks uh, and understanding how those networks are worked in relation to how other systems work, right? And to systems theory in general. Um, you made a comment about how technologists tend to believe that what they're doing is so fascinating and unique that it is not corollary to anything else. When in
1: fact, there are you know, almost always are correlations. Special rules apply to me because I'm, I'm working in a startup. So I actually don't need an HR person and I don't have to worry about hiring guidelines and, all of those regulations about, you know, equal opportunity, no one's going to be looking at, my employees set because there are 1099, so I don't have to worry about that. I mean, there's a whole set of rationales I see so often, right. it, you know, and I, I get the fact that some people think regulation is killing um, the economy. They forget, everybody conveniently forgets what horrible thing happened to cause that regulation to be put into place, um, whether it was the excesses of Enron before, you know, sarbanes oxy and all of that. But then we forget because that problem doesn't exist anymore and therefore let's loosen the regulations. But people are people and they will take advantage. And to, I didn't see at the beginning, but you were very wise in starting and talking about the connection between people and systems and therefore the ethics and technology. Because if it is indeed our core behaviors – that are reflecting into the systems and the buildings and everything that we make around this world, then our ethical imprint is being imprinted upon them. And therefore, could we possibly create an ethically pure or perhaps just ethically agnostic AI if in the back of our minds, we're a bully? I don't think we could. I don't think that person can... Lift themselves out of their bully self enough not to create AI that is bully AI mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is stuff that stops on, steps on other code You know shuts other things down in, in order to maintain its power supply whatever it turns out to mm-hmm. be um, That's bully that's bully technology And it's built by a bully engineer who thinks my stuff is better than your stuff And it's that thinking that gets us in trouble not the code itself I right. mean, you know reboot it turn it off, but we forget the necessity for and and I'm sounding a little too overly poetic here, sorry about it, but washing our hands the hands of our soul before we put our hands on the keyboard so that we don't unintentionally pass along um, the ill will that we are holding in our heart when we're writing code that someone else is going to be using that it will affect them. And I'm not talking about viruses or anything like that. I'm just saying that there's a selfishness, there's a hubris, there's a um, I'm smarter because I'm a Stanford engineer than the engineers that come out of Indiana University. There's all sorts of variations of this me and them mm-hmm. breach and, and again that's that's system-wide that's not just technology companies absolutely it's a company right? absolutely
0: and, and in business some,
1: in some ways tech is no different
0: yeah and so funny enough the prior podcast with Sheila Montgomery who's been an executive at BTS <laughs> for a long time on the sales side of the house we spoke specifically to that um and looking at who owns the business and the ethos of the people who run the business will help dictate the uh, culture within that business. So, on that on that note, I've always found it interesting, and I've gotten into numerous conversations. I won't say debates because they're, they're conversations um, with people about this specific paradigm that used to drive me absolutely insane when I was in Silicon Valley. The, the notion of culture being paramount within these new companies, these new startups to attract talent, um, and that they care for their employees, that they want to go over or above to ensure that their employees have benefits, that they have free time, that they have whatever it might be, um, that culture matters insofar as they can achieve Success, And as we decide, uh, said earlier, that could be a lot of different things. But to a lot of these companies, success means being bought out, right? It means going public. It means having some massive windfall of, of money coming to the firm.
1: Probably layoffs before that in order to meet your numbers.
0: Right. So the interesting paradigm there for me is that culture matters only insofar as that it is a tool that will get the business to a certain point, at which point Culture goes out the window because more often than not, when I see mergers and acquisitions going on and this is relevant because there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on within my industry, the data center industry uh, and telecommunications Mm -hmm. industry Mm -hmm. and and whatnot. Um, So more often than not, what happens is the, the dollars and cents of the deal are paramount. Culture is not paramount. So even though there may not be a cultural alignment, there may be an economic a perceived economic alignment that will then drive the merger and acquisition to I,
1: I I've been through nineteen acquisitions in yeah. my career for various companies, either on the buying or this you know being acquired side, and I can tell you that none of them were successful not a single one met the publicly pronounced objectives of this wonderful combination of two brilliant entities um, nor were I would say 80 to 90 percent of the promises to employees kept more than 18 months. You can handle 18 months absorbing an additional surge of employees, but over a course of time you're going to shed them if they don't end up contributing to your core issue. I I agree with you. I think that um, I, I don't want to discount the pure of heart who really are driving cultural improvement in all of our corporations because they really believe in it so I don't want to diminish the value of it um, I think anybody that is working on the side of um, you know um, battling the dark side keep battling God love you know then that we live on the naivete of those hopeful souls you know in society on the other hand it is not dissimilar from um, someone who spent their whole life believing they should not kill and then they're drafted and they go to war and now they're killing somebody but it's for this government in order to protect democracy and so somehow that's okay and the only reason I bring that up is that there are always compromises between the pure ethical, you know, Edenic world. We imagine in as college graduates and the business compromises, the family compromises, the life compromises we have to make all along the way. When I found out, I was at Synopsis for a long time, um, Cadence for a long time. They bought my company Valid so I stayed with Cadence. Found out they were using our software um, what's the name of the company that makes the rocket they fire rockets <laughs> I can't remember the name of it but it was a defense supplier and they Lucky were Martin. uh no, no no it's the ones that um you see the 16 rockets and they they track a trajectory and they're not going to miss out of the air and Raytheon came out with this wonderful new border side you know rocket battery that ostensibly was a defensive weapon, but of course it could be used for offensive reasons. Who knows whether it's a passenger plane or a military plane, doesn't matter. Um, And I had a friend who had been a CIO Pepsi and a number of other places. He used to hate it when people talked about, you know, fire drills because in in high-tech Because he says that's nothing compared to being a coder on the front line in Iraq When the Raytheon missiles are misfiring and you know, it's a bug in the code and you have to fix it right now Now that's a fire drill of a different kind of sort, right? And that's what he had done before he had come to the United States. He was a coder then coder now, but different intensity involved and I guess all I'm really saying is that I don't, I don't want the cultural do-gooders, and many people would say I'm one of them, because when I come into a new place, I'm always talking about doing better for the teams and better communication and treating your people better and staffing up HR and all the things that the encounters will go. Oh yeah, well of course we didn't want to make money; we could do all those things. Um, so I'm among the people I'm talking to when I say. Keep the faith with that because any progress you make makes it a better world. On the other hand, I also want to recognize that they're going to bump up against walls. They're going to be told they can't. They won't. They'll be laid off in the middle of a perfectly, you know, splunk for good. We're out there gathering food and you get laid off in the middle of that and you got to wonder about a company that's doing such good for the community while shedding 6,000 workers a year company X, where I just came from, um, that rhymes with Frisco, <laughs> sorry, I can't help myself. Um, they do amazingly good work uh, in their CSR organization, but they have survived for many, many years by shedding thousands of employees a year. Um, and a lot of people listening, well, you know, that's just part of life, and it is true, and you find a new job or you don't. but. Once you start making decisions because of numbers, rather than what's best for people, you start going down a different road, then you stop talking about employee satisfaction. But you're still talking about customer satisfaction, so you're not a bad guy. And then you move away from customer satisfaction and you start talking about shareholder satisfaction. And now we're, we've we've shed any care at all about the employees or the customers as long as the shareholders are happy. Um, None of whom we know and they're all part of you know these large institutional funds, but somehow we're supposed to care about them mm-hmm. more Than the person that's using the software We're selling them or the person that made the software that's sell, We're selling them Which is all kind of commodity right now including the people that do it. So so this revolution I mean
0: to, to be blunt Stuart, so when were you born? 1953
1: 1953 yeah. so four got, years but, before China exploded its first nuclear warhead geez. so you've
0: got 27 years by senior you've
1: seen these types of conversations go on had them and and remember them and love them because they're moments right. that other people benefit from and there are so many people who are like Balancing on the line that fifty-one decision should I make a stand here should I open my mouth should I criticize my boss? Yeah. Should I just shut up and take the salary check because I've got a kid and I've got a mortgage and my parents are about ready to go in the nursing home and yeah. all of those compromises and that's those moments in our lives which occur and reoccur and reoccur and even for very wealthy people they occur don't beat yourself up too much for not being that pure person you were in college. You've got responsibilities and sometimes you have to make compromises to meet those commitments. Is, is it a good thing to cut your family's salary off because you can't tolerate how your boss you know, talks about then people? If I had done that, my wife would say, grow up, keep your mouth shut, and go back to work. Yeah. You don't have to like him to collect his paycheck. Yeah. True enough. So it's a balancing act and life is one of those balancing acts, you know uh, So I'm not the 80% of us that are in the middle of the very very Aggressive on one side and very very aggressive on the other side. Whatever item we're talking about those purists the corporate capitalists who have no concern for people nor do they even say they have concern for people because their job is to make billions and billions of dollars and and so that's on the far right side. There are people like that who actually hold that as the highest value and have rationalized a whole thing around their business and their society as the ultimate good. And then on the other side, there are some very, very radical people who want everybody to shed every material thing ever built after the 1500s because it contains some history that has done wrong somewhere. Um, that purist notion is probably also just as error-ridden in terms of It's impact on humanity, but in the middle or most of us are just trying to get through We wish we lived in a more ethical world. We wished our heroes were truly heroic we wished um, Our kids were gonna have a better life than we had there are all sorts of things that are those are very very pure Heartfelt core things and then you walk out there, and it's not a sunny day. It's an icy day and and you have to go back in and get your umbrella, and already you're grumbling, and it's eight o'clock in the morning. That happens. So, so where I was going with that,
0: though, is not just to point out how much older you are than me <laughs> and how much more experience you have, but how where are things trending, right? Because here, here's the the messaging that I hear coming out of Fast Company and coming out of Fortune and coming out of um, Entrepreneur magazine and whatnot is that organizations are trying to attract. This millennial generation, and they believe that this millennial generation has, uh, for whatever reason, uh, they're more in tune with the uh, the dichotomy of those who have and have not. They're more in tune with um, wanting to give back. And the social responsibility
1: aspect of, of corporations. I don't disagree. So hold on, hold on. Many up. companies are doing that yes. for this generation. Right. So my point is this though.
0: As I see that, being, you know, given my experience and my ethos and where I come from, they are almost facades and band-aids that are being put Or hand wavy. A client of mine who would always say, Hey, it's just a bunch of sales, marketing, PR hand wavy stuff going on over here to try to distract you from what's really going on within the organization. We see it in the political spectrum today. We see it on wall street today. We see it everywhere, right? There's just a bombardment of this hand wavy crap going on. So when organizations have these programs, they're a program, right? Or they say, here's our mission statement. And here's our ethics as a business. I still go back to who owns the business and what is the ethos of the people who own the business? Because that will dictate how that business is going to treat you, short-term and long-term.
1: So, I agree with you, and I do think that the the latest cultural trending, the transparency, the emphasis on diversity, are all good things, but they are all um, rather superficial, because they aren't addressing the core mechanisms that drive those organizations. However, I would also say... and. And, and I mean this because I've worked with people who are genuine inside of not genuine institutions, who do good work despite right. the structure of the building around them, who care about their neighbors, not only their cubicle neighbors, but the strangers down the street, um, and are forcing their company to give back just a little bit more than they did the year before because they really want those people down the street to do better, whether it's a better house or better food for the kids or toys at Christmas. And those are pure of heart. I am not criticizing, nor should we want to put the brakes on those very genuine efforts You know, inside of most companies because it hasn't filtered up. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, most goodness filters down into the soil. It doesn't go up. If you drive a social responsibility program in your organization, you're not spending all your time and energy trying to improve the lives of the people above you. In fact, it has nothing to do with the people above you, other than them giving you permission to take a day off to go build a house for Habitat for Humanity, which is a wonderful thing. You're, you're trying to influence sideways and downward. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're seeing that, as long as there is some positive social impact to what you're doing, don't stop. Just because the broader mechanism is advertising that goodness in the company in order to raise the stock price a little bit for the benefit of a few. Because that good work is still its good work on its own, and I don't want to diminish those people who are actually doing that work, because there are more of them now than they used to be because of the trend. However, I agree with you in that there is an institutional, a massive interconnected institutional bias toward self-protection, self-aggrandizement, self-defense. and it will respond. The entity of corporations will risk snap, you know, like a bean fly trap. If their profits are at risk, they will do anything they can when a risk enters the scene. And it doesn't have to be a bad player. It could be. They'll knock it down if it looks like it's going to risk the next quarter's profits. Um, so, so answer riddle me this: Do you see us
0: trending? in a behavioral way from your paradigm in Silicon Valley, but just in general, from what you see towards more ethical behavior, right?
1: Gosh, because I wish if, I could say yes. Yeah. I really do.
0: If technology, if, if what we're saying is really, you need to focus on your core uh, behavior, right? And your core ethics and understanding who you are, how you operate, where you sit in relation to your peers, and hopefully um, having some, concept and desire to do Do good for others right and do well for others and self right not just others but self being important in there, too Um, And that the technology will reflect that right and that our institutions will reflect that are those who are uh, Who own the major corporations that are in our global systemic society? um, reflecting a ethical behavior at that top level because if that trend is not going in the right direction I fear for
1: our future well I I fear for our future regardless right yeah Um, and the answer to that simple top layer question with exceptions that are always exceptions Mm -hmm. and there always have been exceptions um i know people who work for steve jobs he was mean as hell Mm -hmm. um that didn't make him less of a genius he was just mean as hell to the people he worked with and for in historical hindsight most of the people now glory from you know the period of their life when they reported to that genius because historically it is a moment Mm -hmm. um and and good for them i I've had conversations with them and they are torn by it. But the real story, I think, is not in the repeated business that we keep doing. So for instance, to answer your question, are we trending up better than we have before? I would say um, it's a wave pattern and there have been previous wave patterns. I don't think that the value change Millennials are presenting to my generation as middle managers is any different than the people that graduated Berkeley in 1968 Mm -hmm. and with their long hair and their love is everything and they wanted to change the world and they weren't about to work for Bank of America but they ended up working for Bank of America or something like it and they did change those institutions somewhat and there was some impact after a lot of social upheaval and were 70s executives more attentive to ethical and social issues than 50s and 60s executives? Yes, probably so. But then in the 80s, we snapped back to old behaviors in different ways. So I think it's more like a pendulum that swings, not a progressional evolutionary thing. And it's expecting business to somehow... Behave differently than it has done is sort of like expecting caterpillars to suddenly behave differently when they become butterflies. No, it's a process. Mm-hmm. This is what you do. They'll always go through that. There will always be butterflies that are prettier than the caterpillars, and then there are more caterpillars. It's a cycle. It's not a you know upward motion, evolutionary thing. What changes evolutionarily is us, not our institutions per se i don 't have a lot of faith that when lots of good people get together they make good decisions, which is part of the problem hmm. um, so you don 't have faith that when lots of good people no I think the more people involved in the decision, the less likely a good decision ends hmm. you know is the end result and i and I don 't mean that on a team basis I mean that societally so there I really do believe in in theoretical pluralism um the notion that and it, it's there are economic principles involved here where the more pluralistic the system can be, and that means there are purple people and blue people as well as white people in that system, and the marketplace will therefore have purple buyers and blue buyers as well as white buyers, and these are all good things, and the decision-making of a pluralistic executive team, pluralistic you know, federal committee on economic reform, whatever it is, will ultimately be richer than the flat 50-year-old white guy clusters that we see happening all the time. So I'm, I'm a big fan of better decision-making in small consensus-building groups. I think teams do better than individuals in the same task. And I think teams are the only place... I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book about... Um, the next information age andrew something i saw him present he's a brilliant guy i'm just blocking on his name and he talked about machines are going to replace almost everything we do in including some of the things that even 10 years ago we didn't think were possible like oppositional thumb movement and all of those sorts. there are going to be machines that emulate that to a state where they don't need humans to do most of this work where and they will be creative They will be problem-solving machines, not just repetitive motion machines, and they will problem-solve some things better. They're not going to leave a scalpel inside of a patient anywhere, you know, because it's their finger and it's connected to them. No, I'm just joking. But what what will continue to outperform AI, even in its next generation that I can't possibly imagine, is that what happens when... Teams start working truly as collaborative teams, and it's a rare thing, but I've, I've been in some that, by luck, just happened to work this way. The end result product could not have been produced by a sequential string of actions among those same individuals. They were all had to be together brainstorming and pro- coming up with options that they wouldn't have individually thought of, mm-hmm. provoking each other, you know, encouraging each other, supporting each other. Teamwork does things differently than AI will ever do it. And the team, and, and he wrote a whole book on this, that where jobs will be in the future is the jobs that require humans to be in teams than in critical tasks. Those will continue because robots can't do that. They can't brainstorm with another robot. They aren't built that way. Now, AI is beginning to talk to AI, and there's some really interesting stuff going on there. But we've got about 2,000, 3,000, or 180,000, depending on how you count, years on them <laughs> in terms of communication. And we could actually hold our own for another couple generations at least. So I'm not completely negative about that. But I do think that the thin layer on the top, if you're, if you're talking about CEOs and their direct reports, they will continue to behave the way they have always behaved, exceptions notwithstanding. The CEO of Clorox was incredibly good to his employees. He was replaced by somebody who isn't. It's how it happens. So there, there are moments when the light shines, and I've met a few of them, and I've worked for one or two of them, and it's wonderful when it happens, but it's an exception, I'm sure it's a lot different to be a baseball player or a basketball player working for Steve Carr than it is for some other person who isn't as nice to his players. Sometimes you just luck out and you get a good manager. Hold on to it. So I know I don't think the change is happening at that level. I think what's going to provoke that level to change is that we're going to get to a state where the new technologies are so far beyond what those current executive teams can grapple with. So, for instance, CRISPR as a technology is the things that are happening in the medical community because of this neat little idea that's basically just a scissors. What's what's CRISPR? <laughs> so, CRISPR is a gene editing um, sequencing tool that allows what they have found is that they can go in and pull out one, and I may be misrepresenting it to the medical community. My apologies if you're listening. But essentially, if you have a string of, as we all do, string of a, a DNA sequence, and one of those cells inside that sequence has a weakness or a predilection for what 60 years later will become rheumatoid arthritis. And if you can identify it, and if you can, we now have the capacity to go in. Take a healthy cell snip out the bad cell, put its replicated healthy cell in its place, and let that organism grow without the predilection for rheumatoid arthritis. There's some really amazing things going
0: on. I've heard about that. It's like 50% of the time it's been successful. It's, you know, that's encouraging, but it's not.
1: Well, remember, it's experimental, really. so it's supposed to fail 50% of the time. We've got to figure out how to use it and when it works and when it doesn't work. It's yeah. still, we're still in a very early stage. Right. Uh, it's not like it's a refined procedure. But it's working in more cases than anybody would have imagined it even two years ago. I so mean it's startling are you, people. Are you saying that
0: it is there's a potential that um, technology will
1: force a revolution in behavior? I thought what you were going to ask me was something more sci-fi, like could we just go in and remove that bad gene from that CEO's head and replace it with a good CEO gene? Well, I, you know, I'm I'm not there yet. I'm not writing that script. What I am saying is and i was on a more limited basis what will force the transformation mm-hmm. is when the leader whether it's of a bank or a tech comp firm um that happens to be valued at 650 billion dollars and has no cash um or a professor who's in running a department in a, a large university or a senator pick your authoritarian leader, hits a wall because the world around them, the world their grandchildren are so familiar with, is so different than the world that they are dictating that we stop taking them seriously the way we don't take our Alzheimer's-ridden grandparents seriously anymore. When we were ten, and they said something nasty, we might have even developed a, a you know a, a complex because my grandfather thinks I'm stupid, and it would take me many many years to figure out. No, he just had a condition that caused him to say bad things to the people he cared the most about. Okay, um, at that point, when I learned that thing, I categorized Grandpa in a very different classification of citizenry. He's not a decision maker in these family anymore. He's long past his point where he can impose his bad ethics on this existing family system like he has all along. So age does it. But I think rapid scientific development can also do it. Rapid historical change can also do it. It it is disruptive by nature. I do not think disruptive technology is going to disrupt society. I think the whole notion of disruptive technology is stupid because we want repeated, reliable pieces of software. We don't want things to disrupt our lives. We want to buy things that make them better predictably over time. So the notion that you strive to be disruptive and are rewarded for it sort of goes contrary to adding value to the world. I think you know, however, that's just me and language, but I do think that the potential is there for a, a generational, Casting out of a of a certain kind of business thinking. Now, if it didn't happen in the sixties, because it came back in the eighties, is it just an immune system fighting its worst self and then coming back and then its worst self reemerges? I think it's probably more like that historically. I don't know enough. Mm-hmm. I haven't lived long enough to have seen it repeat three or four times. I guess it will repeat three or four times. In which case, it's cyclical. So I guess. The answer to your question is no, we aren't going to transform. We will not reach a higher state ever, but we will sometimes be at higher states than other times. Mm-hmm. And those are the times when we want to make a point, <laughs> when we want to try and prove how people treat each other because there's an open, more of an open, warm reception to it. When we're in recessionary, downward war-driven cycles, not a good time to talk about, we're not treating each other well because no one cares. They're just saying, as long as my family's safe. So you sort of have to go by the cycles, but I think it's more cyclical than it is evolutionary. So where are we in that cycle? About ready to dip. (laughs) I think we're peaking, which is a great thing. It's great to live on the peak. You think we're peaking in terms of a
0: ethical paradigm? and that we're going to be dipping down into a less ethical paradigm?
1: If that's the case, I'm even more frightened than I already am. I think my son will wrestle both institutionally, professionally, hope to God, not personally, with meaner versions of what I've wrestled with in my life Mm -hmm. Um, come next generation. I think uh, there will be more ogres who are successful than angels in the next couple of generations in the same way that it was in the 40s and 50s. Um, And it's a sad thing to say, but I also think he's entirely capable and skilled in ways I never was of of being able to manage through that. Um, I wish I was handing him a better world. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe we are. Um, I think maybe our parents' generation were the last one to even hope that was possible for their children. Um, because the change is too rapid, it's no longer things get better for this generation, then better for that generation, then better. It's more like within a generation you have two economic cycles and two crises. That's within one generation, mm-hmm. so you don't hand off to your kids anything <laughs> that's better than before, as long as because you just went through three bankruptcies and you're now wealthy again. <laughs> you know, within one lifetime, so it's different in that regard because change happens so quickly. So the answer to your question is, I don't think. You should be depressed at what's coming. I've met your kids. They will be fine. Um, You will worry about them horribly, just like I worry about my son, just like my mom worried about me. Um, None of which has anything to do with they are happier, healthier, (laughs) as you know. It's mm -hmm. just worry. Um, I'm not catastrophic in terms of nuclear war, current events notwithstanding. but I do think institutionally, including, you know, military, uh, Eisenhower's military-industrial complex, which was in the late 50s, he comes out with this phrase, is rearing its ugly head again. So talk about, did we fix it? Did we battle it down? No, it just kind of went underground. Now, when it was not in vogue to charge $600 for a toilet, did they drop the price? No, they just no longer, we just no longer advertised much of it. We just kept it quiet. Now it's transparent, so we know about it again, but it doesn't change the the, the corrupt side of things. Um, so just throwing this out there,
0: because one of the other thoughts that I have that I go to when I do get uh, kind of freaked out and depressed about the state of the global systems uh, mm-hmm. that we exist within is something that we spoke briefly about as we were walking around not too long ago. Um, About alternate universes right or alternate paradigms and what if in this reality there are alternate paradigms and it just happens to be that one of the paradigms and paradoxes that we are uh, in tune with or accustomed to hearing about happens to be the paradigm that is pretty frightening right when there's another paradigm that exists um, if we aligned ourselves with that um, one. individuals Mm -hmm. and organizations that are living with ethics in accordance with ethics. Um, The older I get, the more people I meet who are in those positions of ownership uh, of organizations who do, quote unquote, I think, get it, right? Mm -hmm. Get the conversation that we're having and um, can follow it and understand it. I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged that that might exist Uh, and that there are those organizations. So I understand. You have to ask the question. You have to ask the question. Who owns the business? Follow the money. Who's in control of this business? And what is their ethos?
1: So as your friend, I will say, I hope one day you let go of that relentless questioning because that layer of our society, the one you're pointing at, will always be there and it will always defend itself and it is more powerful than you are and you will always end up disappointed but there are many other layers of society where progress is being made despite the influence of those you're pointing at and I'm not saying don't ignore them I'm not saying that I'm saying point them out hold them accountable call them out go to the city council call them an asshole if you want I'm fine with that. More of that needs to happen, and it's happening in town councils, and in town meetings all around. Mm-hmm. You know, both parties are getting lambasted now. Terrific. People are actually engaged and speaking their minds to their representatives. And the representatives have earmuffs on and their people see it, and that's a great thing. However, there's too much reward in this society for that behavior to remain in place. And it's a kind of reward isn't as appealing to the people who want the ethics to change a lot of us don't need a million dollars to be happy but the people that do need a million or a billion or a zillion dollars to be happy behave in a certain way to get that and I don't want to live that life I don't want to have a billion dollars I have never wanted a billion dollars in my entire life so am I uh, if you take me and Warren Buffett I'm not going to displace him although I hear he's a very nice man he has a great Sensible sense of you know he will say the rich people are being the poor people right now in our society and I 'm one of them. I mean he knows that things aren't good. he knows that the salary his secretary makes and, and the benefits he earns is not fair compared to him, and he recognizes that, and for every one of him there are ten others who think yeah that and that's how it's supposed to be, and as long as I'm in power, that's how it's going to be and there isn't any you can't dislodge them from power without becoming them.
0: So, if it's not about dislodging, though, if it's understanding what true success means to you, and if true success to you means having a stable, healthy, uh, personal, family, and professional life that is free of um, political BS and stress, and you're not making billions of dollars, but you are comfortable... Relatively
1: comfortable, right and your position in your neighborhood is influencing in a positive way your neighbors And right. there are benefits to be accrued with that um, You know, I studied Aikido in an earlier life and you and it began with a sense the founder believed if he could calm himself from all warlike Thinking and behavior just himself Then he could then work on and be sure of it absolutely sure completely out of his system Then he could work on he and his practicing partner, just the two of them. And if the two of them can get to a state where they have eliminated any warlike, aggressive injury-causing behavior, they could then turn to partners, and now there are four of them. And this is how healthy movements spread, is by very dedicated staying on task and treating the people right, directly around you, differently than they're being treated you know, by those above them. And over the course of time, it gets passed on. And, and I'm very positive about those kind of trends. I think they've always been there. I think they will. I hope the millennials, for instance, come up with a way to slightly divert. It, it used to be that very, very few people dreamt of being a CIA, CEO. When I grew up, I didn't have a single friend who wanted to be a CEO. Uh, that wasn't a good thing. CEO Procter Gamble? Oh, my God, he's ass Why would I want to do that? Love to be an umpire of a baseball team, etc., etc., etc. But only recently have those positions ended up in a glorified way as compared to others. And if the millennial generation can do nothing more than return it back to its original distasteful role in society, um For those 30 or 40 people we tolerate rather than follow like sheep, that would be a great contribution the next generation could make. That is possible. That kind of ebb and flow of attitudes is possible. But those CEOs, they're going to want to make as much money as possible, and we have a society that says go for it, and that's what America is built upon. And I'm not a big fan of the excesses, but um, I can put up with them as long as they don't hurt other people. I just don't want to be one. Even though I tried, I mean, even, you know, I don't want to be one, never wanted to be one. And there I was trying to do a start, be a CEO of a startup in 2001. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very seductive, the visionary path.
0: Yeah. So if, if the revolution of behavior and ethics, I guess as we're, as through the course of this conversation, as I'm contemplating that, that line that has been sitting on my desk for a while now maybe it's a revolution in how we define success and if if you know the generation in the workforce that's young and capable and able and will be assuming control over the next 10 15 years of a lot of these institutions um can redefine what success truly means to them and that it's not having a billion dollars it's not having you know the proverbial uh biggest Expletive in the room. It's living a balanced life Um, And some would argue that balance is impossible and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that but striving towards uh, Not wealth but striving towards caring for oneself
1: and other people You know, it's like peace and harmony and health and all of those things Is it possible to be completely healthy for an entire lifetime? No, it's not doesn't mean you don't strive to be as healthy as possible Mm -hmm. Um, Is it possible to do nothing but kind deeds for your entire life? I would like to think there are people for whom it is possible. Mm -hmm. I have never met anybody who has achieved that state of grace, but I have met a lot of people who have stunned me with acts of kindnesses at the most stressful times. Um, If we can emphasize those behaviors, Mm -hmm. yes, a pendulum will swing back to its center point. That's the best we can ask for rather than living at the extremes, and I do think we're in an extreme state now. I would love... People to like each other more than they do generally these days. We're kind of tribal now. We're kind of us versus them. Um, and it's interesting because though there are remnants of the sexism of the 50s and 60s and the racism of the 30s, 40s, 50s, here now it's much more about class distinction. It is, it is really becoming obvious that it is the haves and the haves nots We were distracted by race because we thought that was the problem. That was a manifestation of a horrible problem. And we thought it was women not having rights. And it was a manifestation of a horrible problem. But the core problem that we wrestle with, one that you've been asking me, is will the haves ever become better people so that the have-nots can have better lives? And that I don't know about. That might require a revolution. And what disturbs me about the term is that revolutions are usually very painful mm-hmm. for all sorts of innocent people and... The good that comes of it uh is way down the line yeah so if so th- there was another article that you gave me
0: to read and i haven't read it read it yet but you explained it to me in the atlantic that was taking the existing political situation we don't have to get into politics oh, i'm thinking that.
1: about as a a body politic reacting to a series of viruses with and and our having done things that have reduced our immune response to those over time yeah it's a really interesting perspective i like it for the metaphor right um it isn't necessarily a positive metaphor um because the patient's pretty sick and there aren't research teams out there working right now on a cure for this disease the way you know you would like to think people are working for cancer maybe there are though um, I think there are, and I think they're called uh, ministers and you know, rabbis, and, and I think they're youth counselors, and I think they're street musicians, and I think there are all sorts of people who are working on the cure to that. Um, those aren't the people the virus affects, I don't think. Um, those people have always been immune. The rest of the people look down on them because they don't put the dollar as the highest value. And the tech community is really torn mm-hmm. because we want to do things that improve people's lives. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in different company brochures. You know, our product, our service, our company. The, you know. Do they say that because
0: they feel like they need to say that, and have some sort of larger purpose, value, position, or do they say that because they?
1: I've been, been in so many presentations where I ask core. people to just cross the phrase out. Yeah. Just to, I tell them to cross the phrase out and repeat the presentation and tell me if it feels any different and most of the time it just feels like they edited a phrase out and that tells you something yeah. um it's usually an add-on it's usually because that's what people want to hear and when you're pitching for venture money you tell them what they want to hear that's a big rule <laughs> that some people learn early and some people are late but when you're talking to them You've got to keep them engaged and tell them what they want to hear. And then maybe they will give you some money in return. And that's a weird life. and it has nothing to do with technology. So going back to that analogy though, of the system as a mirror,
0: right? So if
1: our... So right now we're ugly, we're fat, we're ill-dressed, we're wearing clothes that either belonged on somebody else or in really bad shape now, but certainly don't fit us well, and we have no clue how to make ourselves appear better in time for the date that's knocking at our door.
0: So if you're you're ill to that extent, what cures that illness? What boosts the white cell count in your
1: body? That's a great question. To continue the metaphor in a really stupid way, if that date turns out and you're lucky enough, To be socially engaged with someone who cares about you for God knows a reason, despite how ugly you are and despite the wardrobe you're wearing, for some reason they see a gem in there and they fall in love with you and you fall in love with them, she'll probably get you dressing better. She will probably get you behaving better in a public setting. She will probably, if she does a really good job balance you out in the workplace, all of those good things will happen if you're not so sick that you think, oh, God, she's not the right one for me, (laughs) you know? So there are loving relationships that are transformative. Mm -hmm. Um, There are spiritual relationships that are transformative. There are few business relationships that are transformative. What we forget, those of us who are drawn toward transformative trends, for ourselves and our principles, and our you know, and our and just our journey through life, and we end up in business for all sorts of reasons that are as much coincidental as anything else. We happen to be good at it, or we did a job for somebody, and then we got offered another job for somebody. Now I'm a businessman. You're talking to me because I'm a three-time CIO, not a poet. Which is not to say you well, don't enjoy that I'm a poet, but that's not why what led us here today, and. Those of us who are in the middle worry more than the rest of them and fret and um, I think another generation now, there will be another generation of those of us who are stuck in the middle. We shouldn't be in business. If we really care about our fellow human beings the way I know you do and the way I do, we shouldn't have ever gotten into business. We We just ended up in there for whatever reasons. We had a knack. We had a skill. People listened to us. Followed us. So what should we do? We We should be pastors.
0: We should be street musicians. You should be the poet that you. I know you you could could be
1: running the American Red Cross and still earning two million dollars a year, but doing a much better job. The person. Mm -hmm. What if? What if you can be a pastor in the workplace?
0: What if you, in the workplace, can live? Find me
1: one that lasts eighteen months.
0: Really? Mm -hmm. I know many, Stuart. I know many in fact there's numerous books that have been written on that very topic alone one of which I read years before your book that transformed my life because I said hey I'm gonna go become a pastor because I don't want to go into that life right and what I realize is that my flock is everyone that I deal with on a daily basis they're my clients they're my employees they're my partners that's my
1: flock and my prediction I hope I'm wrong God I hope I'm wrong yeah my prediction is There will come a day when there is a very big deal in front of you that your pastorly values will be telling you, walk away from and your business will require. You know what? I did. That's why I started my own business. I'm not. I know I'm talking about this business as it flourishes unless you've redefined success to a point where turning down a multi-million dollar deal has nothing to do with whether you're successful or not. If you can get to that place, I look forward to tracking your career, but I always look forward to tracking your career, so. Um, I'm not saying there aren't people who can't pull that off. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that they, the their orbits will not be powerful enough to change Mars from its orbit. Mars is in orbit as it's going to be if not Bank of America forever, whatever replaces Bank of America will behave exactly the same way because that's how it's supposed to behave because it's a big planet. The big planets are going to always behave as long as they exist, which will out-distance us. The us. Institu- I guess the institutional gravitas has a longer life cycle than the individual um, influential cycle. That doesn't mean that the, influ- the individual can't influence many, many people around them mm-hmm. and should and may have great benefit. Um what what if those planets aren't planets but comets that burn out they haven 't burned out
0: yet, yeah, but I mean, how long are we really talking about here? a hundred years, two hundred years for some of these institutions at best, relative to when humanity became
1: so the the thing, of the years? thing about that grain of sand being able to impact um you know, the butterfly impacting the hurricane, the grain of sand impacting the trajectory of uh, of a satellite in, in such imperceptible ways that it's only when it's miles off course that you notice it. Um, those things happen. The problem is, yes, you can impact for good, but there is an equal and opposite possibility of impact for bad. Impact is impact. So for every institution that we cause to buckle because of ethical violations beyond the norm of our acceptability. There have been Enrons, there have there have been institutions that were thriving when they collapsed because people said we've had enough. Mm-hmm. Wells Fargo's about ready to collapse. There are a number of them that have got to a point in their hubris where they really didn't think this bad behavior People didn't even care. And then there was a pushback of such extreme. There are car companies that don't exist anymore. There are lots of examples of suddenly deflating success stories because of the impure path that they took to get there. Aren't we seeing that happen on
0: a regular basis? There's giants that are falling left and right.
1: Not that many. I don't think they were that there are more now than there were 20 years ago and 20 years ago we passed regulations to prevent it from ever happening again and we are now canceling those regulations it is human nature to repeat we will allow them to occur again rather than stamping them out i'm worried about polio not just capitalist institutions we're we're going to get to a place where we forget mm-hmm. the reason why we need to take that vaccination is because there was a time when hundreds of thousands of people were suffering from this and it was killing kids. And then we found out, you must take this and you'll be fine. And then it became, you must take this. And I don't even remember that disease, was it? called? Why do I take it? And then it's, I'm not gonna take it, I feel fine now. And pretty soon we're back battling polio again. 50 years later, it's a ridiculous habit of human society, and it's going on now, too. Yeah. So yes, there are some institutions that are crumbling, and there are also some guards and guardrails that we put into place that are crumbling, and new institutions are gonna fill that lot like weeds. Mm-hmm. So both are true. You know, it's the old manichaean good for evil balance. They are both always there. Um, Which one we choose to be in on a daily or lifelong basis is our choice. But choosing the good side of that black and yellow circle, or whatever image you're using in your head for the Manichaean design, the mistake is, and the other side doesn't exist anymore. Because look how good things are there. I I would
0: never be one that would say the other will not exist. In fact, I think the sine wave is most definitely... A more apropos and historically accurate uh, figure to represent.
1: So so I guess in the end what I'm saying in response to your very first question is I do not believe there is a trend upwards in the business community when it comes to ethics um, or even legality or even just basic humane behavior. However I do believe there are trends and like any surfer There are times when you can move to have the maximum impact at the peak of that wave. That if you try it just two seconds later, you're gonna, you know, and we've got some of those coming, and in another 20 years, we'll have another one of those. Take advantage of the peaks when they happen and build up enough resilience so that you don't die during, you know, the ebb of the wave. But don't presume that if this wave, if I hit this wave just right, I will stay here forever because it never happens. Right. You know. Yeah. So I guess on an individual level, are there more people now thinking this way than there were hundred years ago? I don't know. Well, there's billions
0: so, more people today than <laughs> there were 100 years
1: ago. True. Mathematically, it's we could mathem- probably yes, say. Both well, ends. So so we're trending upward by number. Yeah. Not a bad thing. Yeah, we're trending downward by uh, number probably. I don't know. There are probably a few criminal, criminal enterprises that just simply don't exist anymore because they can't. I don't know off the top of my head, but they're still bank robbers, right? Yeah. Um, but there are fewer of them with guns at the teller's stations because they're logging into bitcoin and taking them that way Um, crypto routers. so not a trend but we're peaking right now on a wave and there are things you can do at the peak of a successful economic cycle Mm -hmm. that not only minimizes the downturn because it's wise and it's you know it's there are safety nets you can provide if you're inclined to provide them for those that will need them a lot more than you do when the rave crashes. There are things you can do. There will be times when we can't do those same things. And so are we getting better at taking advantage of those peak times? I would like to think so, because that's humanity and that's progress. And and the streets are cleaner and the buildings are nicer to look at and better air condition and they last longer and they don't crumble in earthquakes as much as they used to. So there is progress mm-hmm. in lots of different places. We're living longer lives. Yeah. Um, we're, so I was, was going to p- say we're treating each other better, but I'm going to take that one. By. Yeah. So I think the conclusion is we're both hopeful and cynical at the same time. Because it's a wave. Because it's a wave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, remember, yeah, according to the Tao physics, is our slow particle. <laughs> With that... <laughs> I'll yeah. close by saying, I love data centers. <laughs> I was going to ask you. That. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Stuart. This has been
0: a very fun conversation. Next
1: time, we'll talk data centers. I have <laughs> I, I have lots of really cool stories to tell, tell
0: about data centers. Well, there will be next time. Good, good, good. I don't know if we're capable of just narrowing our conversation to just data centers. No, the question is if
1: we, if we ever post this, but that's another question. <laughs> for another time, maybe Laura <laughs> should give us some advice on that one. It'll be posted. All
0: right. Thank you, Stuart. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services Space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com, where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point we've sold close to over twelve hundred copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and and hopefully hear from you soon.